Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining uh, us this evening uh, for the Nursebreak's ninth ever live Q&A. I'm Jackson Heilberg, and I'll be taking you through this interview along with, for the first time, a co-host, and that will be graduate registered nurse Amber Duncan. If you haven't joined us before, well, welcome, and it's awesome to have you on board. The Nurse Break is a platform for Aussie nurses and other health professionals and students to share awesome insights into their careers and promote interprofessional learning. So guys, if you're watching this on Facebook um, currently, make sure to post your comments and questions below in the chat as you watch along and we will ask them live. I'd also like to know where you guys are listening from. Are you a student, a nurse, uh, or another health professional? And I'll um, now introduce you to our guest host, Amber. Hi guys, hey. it's great to be here. Thanks Jackson for the intro. So as in like introduced by Jackson, my name's Amber and I'm a graduate registered nurse with a couple of months left to go on my program. Um, I've also been part of the nurse break for the last couple of months helping Jackson in the background. So it's great to be here um, working with Jackson tonight. Um, and I think it's back time to uh, introduce our guest, Ashton Klein. So Ashton has had an amazing nursing career um, with experience working in areas such as the paediatric field, intensive care and chronic and community health. Um, he's also a clinical educator and senior lecturer in nursing at the Australian Catholic University, um, where he was the undergrad clinical coordinator at the Ballarat Aquinas campus. And lucky or unfortunate for him, he actually took me through my last year of my university studies. Um, and it doesn't stop there. Ashton is also an ambassador for the Alana and Madeline Foundation, which is an, a fantastic organisation keeping children safe from violence. So welcome, Ashton. Uh, thanks Lovely so much. Have you. Awesome to be here. Awesome to be here. And uh, I was just thinking, as you were saying, that's probably lucky or unfortunate for you, Amber, that, you, that you're <laughs> <laughs> Definitely lucky to have you, Ashton. <laughs> I'll let you decide that one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's great to have you. So. For those who have watched previous ones, this is going to be a bit different. So just going to wing it a little bit. We're going to throw questions back at each other. Um, and we're going to cover some topics, including chronic health, which I think is uh, a massive area that's uh, misunderstood. We're going to cover the world of being a lecturer. We're going to cover education, advice of grads and students. But I'll pass it over to Amber and we'll uh, dig in. Yeah, so we'll get started, Ashton. So I think a good place to actually get started is the beginning of your career and what led you and the experiences that led you into nursing. So in particular, um, how that links in with your ambassador role with the Alana Madeline Foundation. Yeah, so it's interesting actually because I was, I was thinking back just before this interview as to, to how I actually got into um, nursing and I remember quite vividly um, the moment that I actually decided to become a nurse um, and it, it was one particular nurse um, that, that had a, a significant impact on, on my entire life really now, uh, now that I've, I've been a nurse for a number of years. Um, I, I became the, uh, the carer for my younger brother um, at the age of 15 uh, after my father murdered my mother uh, when I was 15 and, and um, my brother at the age of six um, had end-stage kidney disease uh, and I became his prime carer. Uh, so following that, we had, we had quite a significant amount of time uh, at the Royal Children's Hospital um, where Grant was being treated um, for, for chronic kidney disease. And uh, we came into contact with a, with a registered nurse. He was, he was doing his graduate year at the time. Um, still remember his name. His name was Shane. Um, Shane Shout out to Shane. 
and and I actually remember a, a particular day where where Grant was in quite a significant amount of pain, um, and um, and he cared for us in such a way that was just so compassionate, so compelling. And I thought to myself, it made such an impact on both Grant and I and the way that we kind of interacted with the hospital, the way that we uh, kind of responded, I guess. And mm. myself, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to be able to make a difference in people's lives at their most vulnerable point. Um, mm. and, and I just thought, what what an honour it is to be able to have that impact on someone. Um, and so from the age of 15, I, I kind of decided that's where I want to be. And I decided that... I want to be a nurse at the Royal Children's just like Shane. So like um, Shane. For, for 12 years, I was just like Shane and uh, with <laughs> children. Um, yeah. The other the other part of, of the journey, I guess, um, for me, as I, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, I, I uh, lost my parents quite young. My father murdered my mother when I was 15. Um, and that that left us um, orphans essentially um, at the age or myself and Grant at the age of six and I was 15 orphans essentially and we we um, we came into contact with the Alana and Madeline Foundation um, and the Alana and Madeline Foundation is a, a foundation really established um, after the Port Arthur massacre uh, established to help children vulnerable children um, in situations of violence uh, and really advocate for them and provide case management support and and funding and uh, an ongoing support to to really nurture and help break that cycle of violence um, and for me um, we came into contact with them and they were really able to advocate for us um, as as two scared uh, you know I was 15 grams six at the time two scared children that really mm. um, weren't able to navigate an adult's world um, that were that were essentially kind of on our own um, we were displaced from our family home at the time um, kind of three days after after the murder um, government kind of came in and said, you guys have to uh, be removed from a family home and go into foster care and so forth. And so mm. have a, to have an organisation that, that really advocates for you and sees you as a decision maker in your life um, was, was something that was quite unheard of, I guess, and something that was really important to us in getting us through that particular trauma. Um, mm. That's how the Alana and Madeline Foundation kind of came into contact with our life. Um, Ten years, ten years later, um, I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked to be able to give back to the foundation um, in my role as an ambassador, um, and to be able to, I guess, repay um, some of the uh, some of the debt that I owe to the foundation for, for providing that advocacy and so forth um, at that time. Mm. About so, um, it's it's great now that. For me, I'm able to give back to children that are stuck in that cycle or that cyclical kind of phase of violence um, mm. that I that I can show them that there is a real way out of that cycle and a real capacity to break that um, through the way that uh, through case management and through um, supportive mechanisms that the foundation provides. And and I would say, like as nurses, we play a massive role, probably unknowingly, a lot of time. Uh, well, we look after people or we are exposed to patients who present to us uh, who unknowingly to us may experience domestic violence. Um, so I sort of want to ask the question, uh, what, so your story is like inspiring and we can dig into that further, but what is your advice for healthcare workers who uh, 
knowingly or unknowingly are going to be exposed to adults or children who experience domestic violence? What would you say to a, to a nurse or midwife? I can certainly say that, that some of the challenges that I had in my clinical experience, certainly as a junior nurse, um, were that was that exposure to uh, children that experienced non-accidental injury, for example, um, yeah. and uh, domestic violence and so forth. Um, not not just because um, I'd been exposed to it in my personal life, but um, because I, I didn't really know what resources were available and so forth um, to help families and, and really felt the need to support them and provide any guidance, uh, provide some guidance for them and so forth. So um, I guess most importantly, um, you need to be comfortable with where to go and, and what resources to actually provide. So, so research things um, quite thoroughly and provide mm -hmm. um, significant resources that will be useful for that person. But, but make sure that you actually empower them themselves. Um, we can't mm -hmm. um, by any means give someone a resource and say, here you go, give this number a call, see you later. Um, you need to make sure yeah. that, that person is empowered enough to actually make the decisions that they need to make within their life um, to make those changes. So um, empowerment is a huge thing in domestic violence. And I think that's that's one of the biggest key messages that I can drive home. Yeah. Um, just touching back on to the Alana Madeline Foundation, um, knowing as a student last year, you were talking a lot about the Buddy Bag program and you got a lot of the students involved with that. So do you want to talk just a little bit more about that and perhaps people out there, how they could get involved with the foundation as well? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I am lucky enough to work for an organisation um, that has a, a Catholic ethos. Um, I'm, I'm not religious myself, um, but, I, but I'm lucky enough to work for a, an organisation that has a Catholic ethos that, that really um, employs those Catholic values of, of um, community engagement um, and, and really instils within its employees the, the values of... Um, uh, you know, helping others and so forth. And so what I've been able to do through through being an ambassador for the foundation um, and being a lecturer in nursing at Australian Catholic University is is marry the two together um, mm. essentially and, and create a nice little partnership between the two organisations. So um, for, for third-year students in particular who are, are really looking for community engagement activities to... Um, uh, you know, not only impress employers, but also drive up their community engagement aspects and, and really mm. get involved in the community as they move out to the workforce. Um, it, it's really important for them to kind of increase that capacity. So one of the things that I've been able to do is set up a, a program um, with the foundation once a fortnight for students to go in and pack what we call buddy bags. Um, and so the buddy bags are uh, little backpacks um, and they include all essential items uh, such as a tooth toothbrush, uh, a teddy bear, a uh, picture frame, a set of pyjamas, um, essential items that um, a child who, if you can imagine, um, gets uprooted from their family home in the middle of the night mm -hmm. may not be able to take with yeah. them. Um, and so it's funny that one of the significant things for me about the foundation in my childhood was every year we received Christmas gifts um, from the foundation and <laughs> losing our family home um, and a lot of our possessions and so forth, we didn't uh, have a lot of things that just belonged to us, um, mm. call our own. So 
for these children who get uprooted in the middle of the night, having a buddy bag given to them by a police officer, um, they're given to police to give out and, and emergency services workers, et cetera, to have that backpack given to them, um, you know, as something that they own, as a token, um, tokenistic kind of ownership, um, can really mean the difference between kind of survival and, and not surviving in that in that hour, mm. I guess, in that trauma. So. Yeah. I, I love how you you oh sorry no Amber go you go Jackson's fine. <laughs> I, I just love how you bring like the students into that uh, into that program. Uh, my camera's gone all fuzzy. Sorry about that. Um, I sort of want to like transition from that beginning to the start of your nursing career. Can you sort of paint a quick picture of how your first few years of nursing sort of um, progressed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I. I did something a little little strange, I guess, um, after I course completed from um, the, the prestigious University of Melbourne, um, uh, <laughs> um, where, I, where I did a of nursing science. I, uh, I actually, so I was in the first year out that, that had to apply for a graduate year through Computer Match. Um, and um, so it was a uh, probably probably back in dinosaur days for you now, Amber and, and Jackson, where you can't even imagine a world without computer match. But um, but there was <laughs> there was one. I assure you. <laughs> um, so um, I actually applied for a graduate year at the Royal Children's, um, knowing that that was the only place that I wanted to go. If you remember Shane, um, I just wanted to be Shane, basically. Um, yep. So. Uh, you had four preferences for anyone that's that's applying for graduate years or, or gone through that process. You will know that you have four preferences. Um, I did a bit of a risky move. I only put one preference. Um, didn't uh, didn't want to be anywhere else. Um, Don't do I, that, anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can talk about the pros and cons to that actually, because I, I actually have a bit of a bit of a. Um, Bit of a view on that myself actually when we get to the later part of this interview i'll provide you a bit of um yeah. anecdotal evidence around that but but uh, i only put one one preference down for the royal children's um managed to to score myself the graduate year um and then i when i got the graduate year i decided that um the graduate year couldn't actually offer me much um from from my point of view i again dinosaur years uh probably for you guys but when i was going through my bachelor of nursing um after second year you could register as an enrolled nurse um mm. so i registered as an enrolled nurse did a did a one-day course um uh, through a through a TAFE organisation to register as a, an enrolled nurse, uh, mm -hmm. and in my final year, I worked as an enrolled nurse um, with with a with a bank, basically Royal Bank. Um, they and they provided um, nursing staff to the Royal Children. So I was kind of already in the system uh, a little bit, um, and uh, so I applied for that graduate, got accepted, and then I actually rejected them. I think I'm probably the only person to reject the Royal Children's in probably the history of um, graduate years, maybe, but. But what I did do um, is instead of doing a graduate year, I uh, a formal graduate year as such, um, I applied for a, a full-time job as a an RN grade mm. one, um, grade two on uh, on the neuroscience ward, uh, and was was grateful enough to have a, a num um, at the time who was supportive um, in in me doing my first year out. So it was a really different year for me, um, mm. and. Um, I'll be honest, uh, I don't think I've ever been held back as a result of yep. that. Um, it's it's interesting that um, 
that so much is now, and look, it was a different time, definitely. Times were different. Uh, <laughs> 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 I'm one of those people. <laughs> um, I'm getting older, guys. <laughs> but the thing is um, that, uh, that there weren't as many graduates coming out, so it wasn't as competitive, I guess, um, in, the, in the market as, as what it is today. Yeah, yeah. So we had a bit, bit more choice and a bit more flexibility around you being the choice of where you go um, and, and, and so forth. But mm. with that said, um, I, I'd like everyone to know out there that there are options if you don't get a graduate year and there is not just doing a graduate year. There is There are other options uh, and you, you mm. should be the decider of whether or not you do a graduate year. Do you know what I mean? So there are, there are some people out there that a graduate year is not um, necessarily the be all and end all and not necessarily required. Uh, so. Mm. so do you think from not being a part of that formal program, how did you get those learning opportunities and fill those skills and competencies? Did you have to drive that a little bit more or did you work closely with your num to achieve that? No, absolutely. I, I had to be, uh, I had to take carriage of my own journey really. Yep. And, uh, and I knew that from the outset of declining that graduate year, um, that that, I, that was going to be the case, um, that yeah. I really drive that journey. So um, I had to put in for um, extra educational sessions that I required. And I really had to seek those out, um, mm. seek out learning opportunities and apply for those, the special leave, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, mm. as a registered nurse, we get, we do get um, educational days in our, yeah, in our study day, days, yeah, study days, etc. So um, I, I accessed all that I could, um, as well as some of my personal leave to attend extra things that I wanted to to make sure that I maintained and upskilled as much as I possibly could. Um, the other thing that I that I did um, that was that was probably you know a little bit random was that after six months I changed jobs in the in the same organization so I did my own two rotations without formally doing my own two rotations so ah. I just I just applied yeah. <laughs> yeah just kind of took real carriage of it so I moved to ED mm. um for six months because they had a job going and I had really good references and it, it just worked out that that was yeah. my two rotations neuroscience and ED so so from having a not a typical start to your career, do you think that the, that what how you had that start to your career kind of led you into the chronic area, or do you feel like um, it, it? What what am I trying to say? Sorry. Um, basically, is there something that you took from that year not having it being typical that um, that has took you forward in that in your career now? Yeah, look, like, yeah, you said driving your learning and, and your interest and seeking those opportunities. Sorry, that didn't come yeah. out very well. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. No, I yeah. totally understand. I, I think um for me, what it what it really reinforced is that um that no one else is is gonna drive my journey in nursing. Um mm -hmm. and and I wasn't willing to really be a passenger, I guess, um in, yeah. in any I, I didn't want to be kind of a, a standard run of the mill um mm -hmm. And not not to say not to uh, down talk anyone who takes part in any program or anything. I just for my personal self, um, that wasn't the pathway that I wanted to take. Um, yeah. so I really made that assessment, I guess, on on my own skill and merit. Um, and everyone should do that, I think. And and even coming out of that year, um, having driven that one year myself. Um, I had a real thirst for knowledge and knew that I was kind of um, 
I was behind the eight ball, I guess, uh, as opposed to other grads. So it really forced me to keep yeah. educating myself, keep driving my knowledge and, and really upskilling. So mm. beyond that, you also held a few other roles. You've been in A&M and ICU and you've had a few other like interesting roles, both in critical care and um, even in, I believe, primary health uh, sort of mm. roles at the Royal Children's Hospital. Can you... Uh, touch on some of those roles and then we're going to move to chronic health and I really want you to explain to the audience sort of chronic health and what it yeah. really is all about. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have had some interesting roles. I've even I've even been up to, to Queensland for a year and, and worked at the Royal Children's in Queensland but um, but moved around um, moved around the, the Royal Children's um, in Melbourne for, for quite a number of years. I'm, I'm sure they had a, a word that we can't use on on airtime for me um, at the Royal Children's working in different areas um, uh, that you can use your imagination to, to determine what that is. Um, but uh, I moved around, <laughs> moved around quite a bit, um, different areas to get lots of exposure and lots of experience um, in different areas. And uh, and look, that that has only benefited me um, in my in my nursing career now but also my lecturing because i've got a taste of different areas as i've kind of and i can impart that with students um i also took a took a year break from from nursing um interestingly and i think um that's something that perhaps perhaps the audience may not be interested but you're going to hear it anyway i guess um so <laughs> um but i took a, a year break uh because um uh, my brother had a kidney transplant and uh, I was kind of nursing at home and at work and, and was a little bit burnt out. And one of the beauties of nursing uh, that many people will be aware of is that that you can, that nursing opens up many doors. Um, and so I, I took a, a six-month contract and I worked for Slater and Gordon Lawyers, um, developing a client assist program for them for people with personal injury, um, acquired brain injury. Um, so they wanted someone with a medical background um, to develop that. So I developed a program and rolled that out nationally. Uh, and then I worked six months for the Supreme Court, um, working with uh, case management for clients with acquired brain injury as well. Um, and then, uh, oh, sorry, Jackson. I was the places nursing can take you, hey? Yeah. <laughs> it is astronomical where it can take you. So, um, and then uh, then went back to the Royal Children's and, and got a job um, as ANUM uh, working with RCH at home uh, where, I, where I really, I had a passion with, for chronic illness because of the care for my younger brother. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I guess was always interested in, the impact of illness on not only the individual but also families as a result of that. Um, but RCH at home really gave me the opportunity to combine a case management kind of long-term uh, management perspective of a person's journey with health um, and the kind of uh, acute care stuff that I like. So it was it was split kind of 50-50. So you could do hospital in the home 50% of the time and 50% case management. So I had um, six clients that I would manage long-term um, and they were children with life-limiting illnesses that, um, that I was really able to, I guess, feel as though I was making an impact on. So one of the one of the things that I was able to do uh, for one child in particular um, was uh, they were they were eight years old and they weren't able to attend primary school, for example, because the school 
uh, hadn't been trained in how to use oxygen and this child was oxygen dependent. Um, so one of the things that I was able to do is go out to the school and train them on how to use oxygen so that, that child can could actually attend school for the first time ever. Um, and that, that might not sound like a significant kind of impact to, to many people, I guess, but for that family and for that child to be able to attend school, for me, that that's my job done, you know, for my yeah. life kind of life stuff, I guess, um, because uh, to be able to make that impact is why I signed up to nursing in the first place. So. Beautiful. And before the uh, audience who will be watching this after and can't read the question I've just put up on screen, um, yes. do you mind taking that question on screen? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the question on the screen is talking about the multi multidisciplinary team, sorry, um, at the Royal Children's Hospital. So really with your role in the, working in the community and working at those cases at home, were you involved with much other members of the healthcare profession in, in facilitating that? And perhaps yeah. some tips and, and, and words of experience for nurses when we, we work with them. Yeah, I guess um, I, I was a little bit naive before I started working for um, RCH at home because as a as a kind of ward nurse or um, even even in PICU, um, you kind of you come along for your shift and you you work closely with the medical team um, and other nursing staff, and then people come and go throughout the shift, um, but you don't have a great deal of interaction um, with that team or kind of sit down and really manage the patient with that team. Um, you might be involved in kind of some discussions around the nurses' station every now and again with with those team members, but you don't you don't really um, sit down and actually discuss in complex detail. Um, you know intricate details about the patient's management and, and you're not involved in those details mm. and so forth. So I guess RCH at Home for me really opened up. Um, we had physios on the team, we had occupational therapists on the team, we had social workers on the team um, and we would actually drive and manage um, as case managers ourselves um, mm. those case management planning meetings for the patients. So because we were managing those patients, we would actually drive those meetings. Um, we would go out to the, the thing that I loved about that role as well was that you were on the road, so um, you, you you know could you could have your music playing and get a coffee whenever you liked. Um, but but you you're actually visiting people in their home, um, uh, in their environment, um, mm. and make an impact on their environment but you were able to go out to their home determine what their needs were and then come back to the team and actually implement whatever changes they might need or discuss what changes they might need to their regimes yeah. and, and so that that um, really opened my eyes to some of the the work that the multi or the work that you can do with the multidisciplinary team yeah. um, when you were just saying that example I remember way back when in second semester when you were telling me about how you got a parking fine once trying to oh, get a coffee yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. but just, just even though um, for say most of the people here on this platform, we might not be working in the community, but being in the acute or subacute setting, we do work in that team and we are a part of those team meetings for our patients. What are tips and tricks? Because sometimes it can feel a bit like a bit of a minefield and a battlefield trying to get your perspective, your nursing perspective, but also understand other people's perspectives in their respective roles. So do you have any tips in regards to that? I think um, I think the the first one is you you've, you've got to have respect for everyone in the team, um, but mm -hmm. you've also got to demand respect for yourself and the, the skills that you bring as a nurse um, uh, to the team and, and as a patient manager. So I I always whenever I'm managing a patient, whether it be on a ward now, um, or, you know, clinically or or whether it be in a community setting, 
I demand that anyone that interacts with that patient kind of um, interacts with me as as the care manager, I guess, essentially. So yeah. um, it's it's almost like a, a, a demand of that respect, uh, the reciprocal respect, because you need to know everything that's happening with that patient, obviously, and you need to collaborate. They need to know everything that's happening with that patient. You need to collaborate more for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but that 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 can't and won't happen if you don't understand each other's roles. Um, so I think a, a really thorough understanding of each other's roles and and kind of understanding yeah. um, each other's perspectives is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but then driving those conversations. So don't be afraid to ask. You know the the OT. What what is it that that you're actually wanting to achieve with the patient or the physio? What is it that you're actually wanting to do with the patient? You know, I don't I don't really understand much about what you're doing at the moment. Can you just explain mm-hmm. that so that I can understand? If, if you're afraid to ask those things, um, then you're not going to have a full understanding of the patient's care. So I think yeah. up and actually having those conversations yeah. and taking charge of that patient's care. It's, it's scary it, for some people. <laughs> it, it is. It's very scary from a graduate perspective, but I think you hit the nail on the head having the, the patient at the forefront and just getting a clearer picture of what everyone's perspective is. And, and I think um, we'll move on to chronic health. Do you agree, mm. Jackson? Yeah. Totally. Great, <laughs> great topic to talk about. <laughs> so as mentioned in the introduction, um, Ashton was the head head of for Australia, wasn't it, for all the ACU campuses, wasn't it, for chronic health? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, held that title of national lecturer in charge. That's, that's um, what I wanted to say. Right, what so, a sexy title. <laughs> five, five years running, guys, five years running. <laughs> So I guess just to take the step back, can you tell us what is actually chronic health and and, and why you're actually so passionate? So you've touched on about it with your your brother and his chronic condition, but maybe just elaborate a little bit more. Yeah, so I guess... um... Where to start? Where to start? Chronic illness is uh, is complex. It, it is, it is. Very complex in in nature, and I guess um, for for the majority, there's kind of two types of illnesses. Really, there's there's acute and chronic, um, as as we know. And the the uh, <laughs> I love that question. Um, <laughs> the the, um, the the most important thing to understand is that the chronic illness is is um, is not curable. Um, and that people have chronic illness for the duration uh, of their life once it's once it's diagnosed um, or even pre-diagnosis um, because many people will have a chronic illness for many years without even knowing it. Um, so it can impact on their life um, socially, emotionally, financially um, for many years. Uh, and so for me, um, why am I particularly interested in chronic illness? I'm, I'm particularly interested in chronic illness because um, it, it impacts on the, the whole person. Um, it's it's not like a broken leg uh, where uh, a person has a, a fracture, they come in, they have it repaired, um, they, they go away, the, the fracture repairs, everything's good, they get mobility back, um, return to normal. Um, for people with a chronic illness, their life is impacted on a daily basis um, by that chronic illness. And, and it's that impact, I guess, that that I really um, strive to enable students to understand in, in my teaching. Um, and, and I really want nurses to understand um, should be at the forefront of their care. Um, because when, when we see patients who have... Uh, a chronic illness, they they come into hospital um, and they may be having exacerbation of a particular chronic illness. We we see them for a day. Um, they have to go home and they have to manage that chronic illness themselves 
every single hour, every single minute of their life. Um, they are never they never get a chance to go home at the end of their shift and switch off. Um, they they have to and they're forced to manage that. So we we need to understand that um, they are dealing with this every single uh, minute of their life. And I guess there's a lot of stigma around chronic illness, um, particular chronic illnesses. Um, you know, if you look at type two diabetes, for example, there's a lot of stigma around that. Um, uh, that that people cause it themselves, for example, um, oh. and that can really impact on the nursing care that we provide to those people. Um, so for me, driving the message home that um, that this uh, particular illness, whatever it may be, in terms of chronic illness, impacts on a person um, far greater than you may imagine. And and the way that I do that um, is that that I use not only personal anecdotes, um, but but I was saying to you, um, uh, I don't know if you want me to. Say this question, Jackson. Uh, that you've got. Up. <laughs> oh yeah. What, yeah. what is chronic health, and how do we make it sexy? Yeah. How do yeah. we make it sexy? <laughs> I, was, I guess. Um, I guess the thing is that um, I, I'd actually like to ask you guys when, when you were going through what what was your perspective of of chronic illness, and and what was it that you thought chronic illness actually was? I thought chronic illness was something that couldn't be fixed. Like I'm take, keeping it simple, couldn't be fixed. Um, it was something that was seen on a gen med ward and it was an area of nursing that I thought I might come into contact with but it might not be an integral part of what I do on a daily basis. So I definitely underestimated the importance of how much I needed it in a day-to-day -day life as a nurse on the ward. In fact, in any area of nursing. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I For me, it was pretty much the... It took me a while, it took me probably six months in my graduate to really realize once I was on a gen med ward, which I actually really, really enjoyed how important the understanding of like pathophysiology of underlying diseases between behind why people are presenting to us. Mm. I mean, initially I was on a trauma unit and sure, someone might have been hit by a car, but beyond that, they could be an elderly individual who crashed their car and they've got multiple chronic illnesses so regardless of which area of nursing you are in and now i'm in an emergency department where chronic illness is like one of the number one things we see so i mean yeah. in my perspective if you want to work in the fancy sex areas such as critical care and ed and icu if you can only do that if you have a really good understanding of chronic health because pretty much yeah. the majority of a day is dealing with it that's yeah. that's what i learned but it it yeah. took me into my graduate year uh, time to realize that I honestly didn't realize and it definitely wasn't instilled in me at the education level at, during my degree yeah. how how pivotal it was yeah. yeah and I think just adding on to it was it was the label as you said before type 2 diabetic so they've just got diabetes it's a patient with diabetes with xyz and mm. actually learning that to look beyond that in the holistic sense and not treating them just as the patient with diabetes but the person living with diabetes so rephrasing um, the way that I was thinking about it and the perspective of the patient. So, um, yeah. Just had a proud moment right there, Amber. Proud moment. <laughs> you taught well. You yep. <laughs> did. That was, that was like straight out of Ashton's brain. Boom. It was. <laughs> um, but also. And, and that unit, yeah. Yeah. And uh, also, Jackson, it was, I was going to say it's very evident that you didn't go to Australian Catholic University if that was your perspective. No. <laughs> <laughs> Joking. Yeah, I can't. I can't even say where I studied, but I missed out clearly. <laughs> That's right. No, um, the, I mean, the other the other thing is um, that that I was 
that I was saying to you guys is is that you've a lot of um, undergraduates in particular they 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 want to go into what I call the sexy side of nursing. So they want to, they want to go into the ICUs. They want to go into emergency. Um, every every student that every second student that you speak to, or every 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 student basically that you speak to, wants to um, you know end up in in ED or ICU. Um, Theatre you know is becoming popular. Those those areas I guess um, that are considered um, sexy. Uh, chronic illness um, you you often associate with the older person as well, um, yeah. and I think that's that's probably why it's less sexy than um, those other areas. And, and so um, for me, really instilling in students and, and graduates that um, chronic health impacts everyone. Um, at every level, uh, children. You know, my my career in in children's health and paediatrics in chronic health. Um, the the amount of life limiting illnesses that that are out there for newborns um, that are that oh. are considered chronic, for example. Yeah. That, that people don't consider kind of typical chronic illnesses, I guess. Um, but the other thing that I that I do um, is is I make it real um, for people, and and make it real for students. So the the numbers are very clear that we have um, an epidemic of chronic chronic illness, basically. And and you know there's there's stats that that one in every second at hospital admission in 2018, for example, was related to a chronic health. Um, issue, um, and uh, so that 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 alone tells you that you are going to, regardless of the area that you work in, you are going to come into contact with someone with a chronic illness. Um, and so the reality is that you need to be prepared to manage those chronic illnesses and manage people with a chronic illnesses and and all the things, the range of things that come with that. I guess, um, and so making it real for people um, is is a really Good way, and and you might kind of wonder how I do that. And I guess one of the ways is is that I do um, invite guest lecturers to come along and speak um, about their own personal experiences with chronic illness. Because if people can put, or if students can put a, a face to a chronic illness, it's no longer just reading about a case study with diabetes, for example. Um, it's no longer just reading about a 68 year old male who had a stroke um, that that's made up by a lecturer. Um, it, people can actually engage with those guest lecturers and, and kind of make it real. I, I just wanted to, so I think a great example of a chronic illness is chronic kidney disease yeah. um, and kidney failure. Mm. Uh, um, something that many people uh, will get uh, and it's something you don't want to get. Um, mm. I think unique about your sort of story is your brother has been on dialysis his entire life Yep. since he was a little kid. So um, can you sort of touch on, without, you know, speaking on his behalf, but can you sort of ex talk about that journey? Like, what is that all about? He's been in dialysis his entire life. Yeah, it's fine. It's, it's all right. I, I speak on his behalf all the time. It's okay. Ah. Uh, <laughs> he's used to it now. Um, um, it, it is, it, it's actually funny because I actually get uh, my brother Grant, um, uh, who is who is usually my offsider um, in the chronic illness unit, uh, to actually come and speak to the lecturers. And, and Amber, you'll remember that Grant came mm -hmm. and spoke um, about his particular... A fantastic lecture, it really was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, people often ask how I pay him, and I just say I pay the rent. Um, but <laughs> but um, but the thing is, um, he he has been on dialysis his entire life, um, and and the 
the little things that he brings to the lecture that I can't bring um, are what really make the difference. So, for example, he tells stories um, like going to a, a petrol station um, and having at, at the age of 23 and having the attendant call the police on him um, because he's got short stature um, as a result oh, of his growth hormone um, not kicking in as a result of his kidney disease uh, and having to explain to the police that he's not a joyrider, that he's actually a 23-year-old male um, who has his licence, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm. you know, for him, that is a reminder in society, he, a simple task that you and I would take, um, you know, for granted every single week, filling up the car with fuel, for him, because he has a chronic illness, becomes a huge ordeal um, and a reminder that he had a chronic illness. Um, so the, the thing that I really, you know, get him to do is explain those impacts and how psychologically it impacts on him on a daily basis. Um, you know, for him, um, you know, the only the only handy thing he says is that that he doesn't urinate, and so it's really handy for for long car trips and and long movies. Um, so, uh, so, so it's it's great for students to kind of hear that that the way that he manages things is is with humour as well, um, but that he really has to. Um, but he's made aware of those things all the time. So when uh -huh. you know when he goes to Crown, for example, and he goes onto the gaming floor, uh, I took him to Crown for his 21st birthday, um, the amount of times that we were asked for his ID, um, uh, even though he was 21 years old, just was a constant reminder that he looked oh. young. Um, and and so that, that constant reminder that you've got a chronic illness is always there. Um, and I think that's some of the things that we forget about um, as a as a nurse when we're treating patients. Mm. He has to endure, I say endure, um, dialysis three times a week for six hours um, a day, three times a week. And, and uh, that's such yeah. a significant portion of his life um, dedicated to his chronic illness. And that's just the treatment. Um, to keep him alive. There's mm. there's a whole range of other appointments and so forth that go on beyond that. Um, but then as a nurse, we interact with that patient and we forget, uh, sorry about the chihuahuas in the background. <laughs> Just bring them on, bring them on. <laughs> we are, I will actually admit that, uh, that, we, that that person's actually managing all of that on a daily basis. Um, mm. It's, it's really important that we consider um, what the person has to take into account on a daily basis and what mm -hmm. they actually um, what they have to engage in because that's what they're dealing with. We, we, we might just see them as someone who doesn't comply with their fluid restriction, for example, or someone who takes eats too much salt um, and so their, their salt and sodium levels are through the roof and their potassium levels are out of control. Um, but for them, managing those restrictions on a daily basis is really quite a challenge um, because they just want a normal life. Um, so, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a battle every day. Mm. So, so, you know the saying how they say that nurses, are we care for people, but we don't always care for ourselves. How, how has his illness and chronic illness impacted you, being oh. both a brother and also having that nurse perspective both? Every single day. Um, he, he will tell you that it's both a blessing um, and a curse that I'm a nurse um, because sometimes I just, I know too much. Um, yeah. And uh, the other 
the other reason that it's a bit of a curse is if you are a nurse looking after him, um, mm -hmm. you better watch out. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm watching you like a hawk. But for me, um, I, I, I am inspired by him every single day in the way that he has developed so much resilience. Um, he, people say that he is lucky to have me uh, because I became his carer, I guess. Um, but yeah. in so many ways, uh, I am lucky to have him. And he, he really kept me going through my life, I've got to say, and has kept me going through my life and really fueled some of my journey. Um, yeah. So it is, uh, he is um, absolutely an inspiration to, mm. to both me and my nursing career. Yeah. Has there been any other Shane experiences where along the journey with Grant you've had nurses that have made it that little bit easier or a little bit more um, comfortable for the process for both of you, especially during the tough times and also the good times? Is, is Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's been, um, interestingly, there's been kind of both, both sides of the coin. Uh, yeah. So um, we've had a... a huge number of great experiences uh, where nurses have really um, really engaged with us quite well and and really mm -hmm. kind of um, you know just just worked with us as a team I guess Grant and I operate as a team and and really mm -hmm. worked with us quite well um, there's there's also unfortunately um, our experience with chronic health, because Grant's Grant's now 27 years old, we've been dealing with this for 27 years and we were on peritoneal dialysis for, for 13 years and, and we've been on hemo for, for 10. Um, we know more about our chronic health and that's the other thing about chronic illness is that mm. the patient knows more than you do often. Um, yeah. so we, know, we know a hell of a lot about um, Grant's chronic illness and we know a hell of a lot about renal disease, I guess, um, and it's often frustrating when health professionals, and I'll say health professionals in general, not just nurses, um, mm -hmm. don't, their knowledge isn't up to scratch, I guess. Um, yeah. So, you know, Grant Grant doesn't urinate, for example, but we went into um, a, a renowned um, hospital that's known for excellence um, and, uh, and I will say um, that... Um, that that on admission, um, the the nurse asked him for a urine sample, even though it was very clear that he was there with renal failure, um, mm. as a with renal failure, and he was on that admission because he was having a parathyroidectomy as a result of having renal failure. So, to ask someone, you know, just no critical thinking there, and that's what I get most frustrated with is when nurses can't put mm -hmm. the people together I guess um, or they haven't bothered to kind of take a step back and think about how that chronic illness actually works and how that plays out in a patient's perspective so if you yeah. don't have the that working you don't produce urine you know it's that simple yeah. <laughs> so, so don't ask for a urine sample you know yeah I think as a as a grad nurse I have this perspective of trying to understand the hospital's policy and procedure on the ward that I'm working on but also I understand that if someone comes in with a chronic illness like COPD, yeah. they've had that for who knows how long. It, yeah. It's kind of, it's really hard to kind of balance working with them but also ticking off the boxes because that's that's really how um, oh. I've got through this year is following those policies and procedures. Yeah. It's um, been a bit tricky it's, to navigate. It's funny because um, I will say that that as a an early career nurse um, working in paediatrics, uh, I learned very early the difficulty of working 
with families kind of watching me and knowing more about mm. um than than I do because um like I said I watch nurses who care for Grant like a hawk um parents would watch me like a hawk uh you know and and would not let mm -hmm. me touch their child um until I jumped through hoops to prove myself and my knowledge and so forth and mm. rightfully so that's the way it should be um but mm. uh, but I learned very early that um that you really have to uh you have to find the balance between ticking the care plan off um and and knowing what's relevant to that particular patient i guess and mm. I'm, I'm actually um a little bit disappointed in the direction that nursing is kind of going at the moment in that it is it is moving towards um a one-size-fits-all approach um in the in the sense of we have someone with renal failure we treat them in this this way um mm. and we follow this care plan that that tells us, uh, you know, to treat them in this particular two-day time frame um, with these particular parameters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's all that's all based around funding and so forth. And and it, it needs to be at the moment, obviously. But but it does mm. mean that our care is somehow sometimes compromised, and our clinical reasoning is sometimes compromised because, like you said, Amber, we get caught up with the with the tick boxes. Definitely. Um, and I recall from last year, you were doing a doctorate. So you were doing some extra studies into chronic health. So do you want to just have a little chat about that too? So not actually, not actually chronic health. I'm actually, um, I'm probably. Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. I'm probably hated amongst my, my um, nursing peers, to be honest, because I've gone against the, again, I've gone against the grain, surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> but I, I um, kind of feel in, in nursing that I had, um, enough knowledge uh that i didn't that i didn't want to advance um you can never have enough knowledge i guess but for me personally mm. i felt as though i had reached the point in my education in nursing where i no longer wanted or had a thirst for further knowledge in nursing i guess mm -hmm. Um, but what I did have a thirst for knowledge was, and I, I randomly stumbled into this career, um, was um, was a thirst for education. Um, and so I've chosen to further my studies in education. Um, mm -hmm. uh, again, as I say, against the better judgment of many nursing, uh, lecturing and academic peers, because they would say, you need to further your education in nursing and get a PhD in nursing. Um, but what I do is I teach and I educate. Um, and so my my kind of rationale for it is is if I can combine the knowledge that I have in nursing with um, good educational sound strategy and rationale around education and pedagogy um, and combine those to create great curriculum for students, bang, you've, you've got, you know, a winner, I think. So um, mm. I, I'm not sure why anyone wouldn't want to do that in an educational setting. Yeah. I think this is a great segue into sort of the role of being a nursing lecturer. Mm. Um, that sort of what you just said then sort of just gave me the idea of like when someone becomes a nursing lecturer, is there like, uh, is there a standard sort of way that nursing across the board, because there's a curriculum that every university sort of nationally has to follow, but is there sort of like this, um, what am I trying to say? Is there this sort of... Is there a standard you know, pathway yeah, to becoming you know, a lecturer at university? Or is there a uniformity in the way to teach? Oh, yeah. lecturers? Do lecturers have to pass? You know, is there sort so, of... 
So I guess um, it's two parts there. So I guess the the first one is um, where all universities are kind of accredited by ANMAC, um, the Australian Nursing Midwifery Accreditation Council, mm-hmm. um, for their curriculum. But um, the curriculum as such is not a national curriculum um, within all universities. Each university will have its own delivery method of that particular curriculum. Um, and so the way that a, an institution decides to deliver that particular accredited nursing curriculum is entirely up to them within those parameters of that accreditation. Um, so um, this year, for example, I developed a, a, a third year unit on critical thinking and clinical reasoning. Um, and so um, that was uh, one of one of the kind of milestones in my my educational career was to create that unit from scratch and and roll it out this year and, and roll it out nationally. So um, that's been a huge milestone for me. Um, so that that is um, unique to ACU that particular unit, um, but clinical reasoning is embedded within the nursing curriculum from an accreditation point of view. If that makes sense. Um, okay. Um, to become a, a lecturer, um, there's there's no standard operating procedure as such. Um, I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess uh, for me, uh, I would never have guessed seven years ago when I started um, educating um, how that I would be here um, singing the praises of being a lecturer. I guess um, and saying that it's my passion. Um, I became I randomly emailed um, someone at ACU about some uh, clinical education role um, and became a um, sessional clinical educator. So going around to different hospitals with groups of eight students and providing their on-ward education, etc. Um, just did that for a whole year. Um, it was it was great pay. Um, the conditions were great. You never got ingrained in an organisational pot like politics and all of that kind of stuff. You had eight students that um, you assessed uh, and you could move on after three weeks, basically. It was fantastic. Um, <laughs> Um, and all different year levels. So it was different organisations, different year levels, and you were employed by ACU. So I did that for a whole year. Um, and then then um, I must have got some good feedback um, or something, uh, or ACU were, were pretty silly uh, because they invited me to teach um, on campus um, and, and do some sessional um, tutoring. Uh, so just come and run some tutes and I did that, did that for a year. Um, and then um, a full-time role popped up on the Melbourne campus. Um, and so um, took that on and uh, we worked on the Melbourne campus for four years um, as, uh, as a lecturer there and, um, and re- really loved it. Just, just fell in love with, with, the, with the, I guess, for me, I love... Um, the energy that you that you kind of get from students and the the drive that it kind of gives you the the passion that students have for the knowledge sometimes um, and uh, <laughs> the energy that you get from a classroom environment um, uh, yeah. and and what I really love is is I, I think I said earlier that that I became a nurse. Uh, looking at Shane, if you remember from RCH, so that I could make an impact on families. Um, I realised in my nursing career that that I could make an impact on um, a small number on of families and patients and so forth. Um, but what I realised in education is that that I could impact nationally two and a half thousand students per year, for example. Um, and so the breadth of that impact that I could make um, in terms of my passion uh, in nursing, you're going. 
or dark Jackson. Um, <laughs> going to the dark side. My yeah. housemate just pulled out the wrong electricity cord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bear with me for two seconds. Please continue. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the breadth of that impact, I guess, um, you know, is is far greater reaching, and, and it it's not really mm. about that. But it but it for me, being able to impart the passion that I have for the type of nursing that I have and the, the way that um, I teach chronic illness and the way that I teach cl clinical reasoning, et cetera, um, is, um, it, it's just enormous. So being able to make that impact, um, I can't get that elsewhere. So uh, it's awesome to be able to do that. We've just had a question come through. So anyone who's watching, um, there's quite a few of you. If you have a question about chronic health, being a lecturer, anything at all, just chuck them in the comments and we'll, we'll ask Ash. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, Michelle has asked, "What will be? What uh, are your suggestions? So, what will be your suggestions? Universities or teaching hospitals should do to further enhance nursing education or curriculum." Broad question, but um, I'll let you tackle it. Hmm. Um, I, th I think the the biggest thing is that that you have to make it relatable um, to students so that students can actually um, engage with the curriculum. Um, we we can. We can teach things from textbooks, from technology, um, et cetera, et cetera. But if students at the end of the day don't actually understand where they're going and, and where they've got to go in the curriculum, then there's no point in teaching them really. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a, a thing in, in education that in order to achieve, um, a student must know kind of where they're headed. Um, and I guess that that's true in nursing, that, that you've got to, really understand um, where it is that you want that student to be. Um, so Amber, hopefully you remember that that one of the things that I pride myself on with my students is that I very oh. clearly articulate what it is my expectations are with those students. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in terms of nursing curriculum, um, we are, we're, we're becoming very, um, we're, we're moving a little bit away from uh, an understanding of the impact of illness and so forth on people for the technicalities of nursing, um, because there's a real thirst for that knowledge and so forth. And understandably, there should be that, there needs to be that. Um, mm -hmm. But I also think we need to be careful not to lose the fundamental underpinnings of, of the person. Um, and I think that's where there's a huge loss in our curriculum because there's a real push for that knowledge to, to come through. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious. This is just a question I've always wanted to ask you and I've only had the opportunity now. When I look and think back of all the teachers that I had last year, um, you, stuck out, you stuck out, I should say, for all the good reasons, but you're very engaging and enthusiastic and passionate, which I think people would engage from this interview. But is that integral as a result from the experiences you had as a student and other lecturers that you had? Did you take bits and pieces from um, teachers that you've had that you've put into your teaching style now? Yeah, certainly. I, I think um, the thing for me is that that um, students need to see that you're a human. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I um, I need students to um, to do what I need them to do to pass the course. They, they are there for a reason, to become mm -hmm. a nurse. I need them to realise that, obviously. Um, and, and, you know, I have um, pulled students aside and said, at the end of the day, I've got my qualification. I, I don't need to be here, but you need to be here. So what is it that, you know, you actually uh, cool. would like to achieve from this? Um, 
but I also let them know that that I've got struggles of my own. Um, that that you know I've got two chihuahuas. Um, that that I have a brother at home. Um, you're gonna have to meet the chihuahuas in a moment, guys. Um, uh, that um, that uh, that the things sometimes you know turn to shit. Pardon the French. Um, you know, and that that we're human. Um, that I make mistakes yeah. as they do. The other thing that I think is really vital for anyone that's teaching. Um, in any sector at all, but in particular in nursing, is to not give students a sense that you know it all. Um, that you need to let students know that um, you are not the holder of all knowledge as a lecturer, um, as an educator. Yeah. Um, I, I have skills. Um, I have knowledge. Um, you have skills and knowledge. And, and the way that I approach my classes is that they are a collaborative approach. You're my colleagues. Um, yeah. You're not... You're not lower than me um you are on the same level as me and i think that's what i kind of instill in my students is that we have discussions and we have really open honest um you know frank discussions around things where you can bring things to the table it's not just me telling you mm. how it's um and i think that's that's actually you know in answer to the other question about curriculum that's actually what's missing in a lot of the curriculum as well is just just being human and having a chat about things and actually nutting things out. Um, you know, we we get so caught up in the, the right answer for things. Um, sometimes not everyone has the right answer. I don't have the right answer all the time as a lecturer and, and I'm certainly willing to put my hand up and say, guys, I don't know the answer to that in classes. Um, mm. let's, let's look at that together and I think that's one of the biggest things. Yeah. I think you, you really honed into on not always knowing the answer but knowing how to find the answer and how to figured your way around get to get to that point which was which was um handy and it's come in handy this year definitely yeah. um so what's it actually like to be a lecturer because it's not just turning up to class taking the the shoots or doing the lectures or putting things up online and marking papers i'm sure there's a lot more behind mm. the scenes that goes with it there's there's a really good meme that i think kind of um uh kind of <laughs> Um, <laughs> signify kind of what lecturing like. You know those memes that kind of say um, what my friends think I do, what my you know what my partner thinks I do, what I yeah. actually do. Um, mm -hmm. That is lecturing essentially. You know because there's there's so much of so much of lecturing um, that um, that people don't see that that goes unnoticed, I guess. Um, and um, I'll be honest, I went into lecturing very naive, um, not not really understanding what the role involved and absolutely flogged myself for the first year trying to get all the work done um, mm -hmm. that, I, that I had to do because it was just an enormous workload. Um, so uh, I guess... On the outset, um, you know, and, and friends of mine still say this, that, that all you do once a week is you stand up in front of, you know, um, 500 students and you deliver a lecture um, and then you go home and you play golf or whatever it is, you know, that you do. And I go, oh, if only, you know. <laughs> or I do, do you play I, golf? I hate golf, actually. <laughs> um, I don't think of anything worse. Um, but, um, but really... Um, uh, there is a, a huge amount of administrative work that goes on to manage students. Um, my email goes off chops like you wouldn't believe, um, you know, all the time. And I, I guess I'm a culprit of that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But um, the thing is that 
that you um I mean in Ballarat I've got 1200 students that I manage um, as a clinical coordinator and this year in particular um, has been a, a huge workload associated with managing placements um, yes. and so the intricacies of allocating placements managing partnerships with clinical agencies um, allocating those students in each year level finding them placements all of those kind of things are um, administrative work that isn't really recognized. Um, so it's, yeah. it's far greater than just um, than just delivering a lecture, delivering a shoot. I guess that's the fundamental kind of what you do. Uh, perhaps perhaps five percent of the time that is your role. Um, actually, yeah. the the part that people see is is perhaps five percent of your role. Ninety five percent of it um, is a hell of a lot of marking that goes on. Um, I'll say, and and that is probably um, the most uh, how should I, what, uh, the the task that I hate the most. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but um, uh, it's it's not kind of um, yeah it's it's not as glamorous is what people think. I, I think a lot of people think that you put into education and that's that's kind of a glamorous role. But do you, Are you working hard for your money or is the remuneration quite good as a lecturer? Uh, I am, I'm definitely working hard for my money. Um, I, I will say that the remuneration is one of the, probably one of the highest that you will receive in nursing. Um, okay. uh Particularly for my age, um, I'm very, very lucky to have the role that I do at, at a young age um, and get into it at such a young age. Um, however, um, you work bloody hard for that money. Um, they certainly spoil you for it. So um, it's, um, yeah, and, and now that um, COVID has hit, we universities are slashing, um, you know, universities Australia-wide are slashing um, lots of things. So, So I've got two questions. Mm. Um, I asked, so the nurse break has a Facebook group called Australian nursing yep. and there was a poll that I created or someone created. It was, is university too easy to get into is nursing degrees. Is the nursing degree too easy to get into and, or is it too easy to pass? And I'd say more than 80% of several hundred people said it's too easy to get into or it's too easy to pass. Um, that was the overwhelming majority from nums through to lecturers themselves who were commenting on the poster. So it was interesting. I'm sort of curious, what's your perspective? Is it too easy? Like, are we just churning out too many graduates for not enough positions? Uh, is our curriculum just not hard enough? Or so what are some of the current issues, would you say, uh, in the system? But let's start this one by saying that that all views um, presented are my own um, and and not representative of um, the Australian Catholic University or um, any other organisation. Um, just to just to be clear, yeah. um, uh, but I, I guess um, uh, essentially, I, I do think that there has been there was a there was a shortage um, of of nurses, but but the shortage of nurses is not at a graduate level. Um, and I think what happened with that was that um, the number of university places increased to try and fill that shortage. But what has happened um, is that that's resulted in a huge number of graduates being pumped out into the system, but with with a with a lack of mentorship um, through those middle years of nursing being available. Um, and and so um, as a result of kind of systemic issues within nursing, perhaps 
yes, um, there are, it is a little too easy to get into nursing. Um, uh, ATAR scores and so forth have significantly dropped um, in terms of um, places and so forth. But um, with that said, I, I don't think university is too easy. Um, what I think um, is that um, it is it is becoming uh, more and more, I have to think very carefully about how I answer this question, Jackson. Uh, <laughs> I think it, I think it here is, for the difficult questions. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I did say that there was open slather, didn't I? Um, <laughs> I, I, do, I do think um, that university in general, um, it is becoming very difficult to fail students um, in, in general. And I think nursing is um, is one of those that is, that is falling um, in, into that category. Um, it is uh, now with the, and, and I'm not just talking about the organisation that I work for, there's in every, across the board, um, it is becoming more and more difficult to um, uh, to fail students. And not that we set out to fail students, but um, but I think it, it's just becoming more and more difficult. And, that, and that's probably a reflection um, of uh, the way that the university sector is going. I, I um, Michelle has commented again. Thank you, Michelle. In relation to Jackson's question, do you think an examination before becoming a registered nurse should be considered like in the USA? Um, yesterday, I was involved in a sort of Q&A like this, but I was a guest with a few other people for St. John Ambulance Victoria. There was a whole bunch of paramedic students there quite nervous about the realisation in Victoria anyway that there's very few positions for a paramedic. And a good solution to that is to have a backup or choose nursing instead because um, there's a great career there in, in nursing. Um, and it's not just degree. nurse. What's that? Do the, do the dual degree. Yep. Do the dual degree if you can, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, one one answer is, is question is like, should there be an examination the, before, for example, medicine has, you know, the GAMSAT? Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I think I think what there has to be is a little more. Um, when I when I I'll start again. Sorry, guys. Uh, when I look at when I went through university, the university course that I did at the University of Melbourne um, uh, was a little of the old and a little of the new system. So it it incorporated um, from first year first first week. Um, it incorporated two days of clinical placement every single week. So we were on placement um, uh, two days a week in first year for 12 weeks. Um, we were on campus two days a week and we had one day off. So that was kind of Monday and Tuesday we were, we were on campus and then Thursday, Friday we were on clinical placement. Um, and then that, that was kind of scaffolded through second and third year. Um, and so you had exposure to the clinical setting from the outset. And I think... Often what happens um, now in university degrees is that students don't have the exposure to the clinical setting until first year, and even then it's not um, an acute experience, it's an aged care um, experience. Uh, and you may, in fact, go right through the second year um, and get through first semester and then have your first acute experience, I guess. And so the assessment doesn't really start for you in a clinical setting until that, uh, uh, from a from an acute point of view, um, until that second year, first semester end of. So you're kind of a year and a half into your degree um, and then that assessment really kind of starts. So I think that's, that's problematic 
um, in our in our system is that there, there's not enough clinical placement. Um, I mean, when we look at the number of clinical hours that's required to actually graduate, you, you require 800 hours, which yes, it's a significant number of hours, but um, but is that is that really enough? Could that be scaffolded throughout the degree as opposed to in block chunks? Um, I, I think that industry would, would benefit much more from having students out there on a weekly basis ingrained in organisations and so forth a little more, um, where we could embrace a little of the old hospital training system with the new system and have an integrated approach. Um, and I think that that would actually benefit students as well because it, it would mean that they are being exposed to the culture of nursing, the environment of nursing and the workforce um, that they're going to be a part of um, much sooner um, and being ingrained in that. And so they would be um, more susceptible to the testing, I guess, that takes place after they graduate. So you, you wouldn't really have um, the uh, smack in the face that you have once you graduate, I guess, for want of a better term. Does that, does that kind of answer that? No, I think, I think it does. I, um, mm. What do you think, Amber? I think you, you hit the nail on the head. There's kind of that mentality, well, I feel as a student there was that P's equal degrees and it was just to get through to the placement, tick off what you needed to do and then you'd learn everything on your graduate year. And I think the people that had that mentality had that baptism of fire into the nursing mm -hmm. industry and the people that really took, um, dependent on when they had their acute placements, as you said, everyone's uni experience is different, but the um, effort that they put into it was reflective in the success they had in their graduate year. So I think, yeah, I'd agree. Mm. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a really good perspective. Mm. Um, yeah. I have to know, I have to know, what, what, since you've said 1,200 students and there's so many students you look after over the years, what is the best gift you've got from a student? <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's funny actually because at the start of each at the start of each semester, I, I have a little running joke um, each semester that um, that in order to pass the unit, um, students must supply me with a with a fifteen year old single malt whiskey. Um, and uh, and I, I do say it kind of tongue in cheek and make make sure that everyone is aware that I'm joking. But but on particular. <laughs> You can make me a believer, Ashton. <laughs> some, people, some people take that as quite prescriptive. Um, and so on a couple of occasions now, I've, I've had an, a number of students, I've, I've actually seen them in class writing down 15-year-old um, single malt um, and uh, and then at the end of semester presenting me with 15-year-old single malt whiskey, uh, which which costs, you know, a good 150 bucks or something like that. Um, and, and I've... I've you know, regretfully had to decline it, obviously, but um, but uh, but it is is very sweet of them that um, that they do they do take notes in class at least about the gifts mm. that I require in order for them to pass. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah. Um, so just curious, uh, you, like as Jackson just said, you do have twelve hundred students. What are the cohort of students or the characteristics of these students that do well at uni and not always hit? the HD marks, but you see that do well on placements and have the potential to do well in the nursing Good field. question. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because um, a couple of years ago, actually, I uh, when I was when I was working on the Melbourne campus, I had a, a great example of this um, where a student was um, he wasn't a wasn't what we call a P's get degrees. He wasn't just coasting through, kind of not applying. Yeah. 
he was this this particular student was genuinely applying himself um but was was struggling to get those pigs so um in the theoretical kind of unit but on clinical um was absolutely brilliant um kind of picked up things really quickly and and i actually um uh, went out to visit a site um, and clinical placement and uh and i i seen just happened to see this student um excuse me one second i've got Little Blaze, who's about to about to bark here. Um, <laughs> Hello. What's his name? Blaze. <laughs> so um, I seen um, I seen this this particular um, student sitting um, with a with a patient who was was dying um, and just just holding the patient's hand and comforting the patient. Um, and I thought to myself, it doesn't matter what grades this student gets that is um, the kind of student that I want to be a nurse um, because when I spoke to the educator about that particular student, they said I, I didn't even ask that student to go in there. He just went in there of his own accord and decided to sit with that patient because the patient had no one sitting with him um, during that particular time. And, um, and, and I thought to myself that that is all that I can ask for in any nurse is that they have kindness and compassion, um, you know, and the rest will come. Um, you know, there are some students that it won't come for, and you know those ones. But um, but there are also students who will learn with years, and and sometimes a, a P in a theoretical unit is sometimes enough, you know, for them. And their clinical experience speaks for itself. Um, mm -hmm. The the other qualities of great students are the, the ones that are adaptable. Um, I think so. Um, the ones that <laughs> I. I as I, as I said, I manage the clinical placements for all students and this year in particular has been a nightmare to be basically actually finding clinical placement planned. Um, but um, uh, it, it has um, taught me a lot about the way that students deal with change and the way that students um, manage changes to clinical placement, cancellations of placement and, and so forth. And the best ones are the ones that are adaptable and responsive to that without it without it kind of being, um, you know, it's fine to say, you know, woe is me, my placement was cancelled. Absolutely, you know. Um, but um, some people take that to the next level and I think the ones that you really see that take it on board that are adaptable and really rise to the occasion and just say that is, that is life, Ashton. I understand that you're working on it and we'll get a placement when we can. Um, mm -hmm. Those are the ones that I kind of go you're going to be a great nurse. Um, yeah. okay. I remember you used the analogy at the start of my final year and we're all in the lecture theatre and you said your third year is a, is a journey and I'll, I'll hold your hand down the path and we'll, we'll do the bumps and, and we'll get through it together. So how, how have you done that and motivated your students this year? Because as you said, it's been a year like no other. And yeah. as you said, it's been a year to not be Ashton Klein apparently because yeah. your job's gotten harder. Yeah, look, it has been. Um, I guess the the one thing that I that I have made a very conscious decision about this year is um, um, is is to be very frank with students about where things are at. So um, I've I've made a conscious effort to invite students. Um, I've held more meetings with students this year than I ever have in my life um, to be open, and, and I've felt more like a politician in this year than I ever have in my life. Um, 
if if I say the the term unprecedented times again, um, <laughs> <I may vote. laughs> uh, but but allowing students to kind of um, we all feel anxious when we don't know what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess for me, managing students um, is a is a little like that. You need to let people know that you are on it. You're working on it. You haven't forgotten about them, um, and mm-hmm. that you will, um, you know, that you will 100% deliver on what it is that you promised. And I guess for mm-hmm. me, keeping students in the loop is one of the biggest things that I guess um, lecturers or my colleagues don't do effectively sometimes um, to their own detriment. Um, mm-hmm. So communicating with students is really important and I think particularly in this this year um, has been really important so you know I've, I've told students this year that realistically guys I don't know when you are going to get a placement but I can guarantee that you will get a placement yeah. um, and just having that open frank conversation um, is is something that is really important and you, you can't put a price on that because the students mm. do respect your transparency um, and I think that's if you try and hide that, um, with with kind of cloaks and daggers and and pretense and all the rest of it, the students will see through you essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So COVID is impacted everyone in different ways, and you, you've touched on a couple of them. But do you think, in particular, for your your students, your final year students, and perhaps the graduate class of this year, do you think it'd be a, a positive impact that the skills and the being adaptable during this year will have during our career? Do you think it's going to put nursing in in good stead? having the junior nurses exposed COVID and COVID nursing? I think, um, interestingly enough, um, I think our junior nurse workforce from this year will come out more skilled than um, probably what some of our senior workforce was in relation to infection control principles um, and knowledge around infection control and so forth prior to this year happening. Um, mm-hmm. the, one of the things that this year has kind of taught us in nursing is that we weren't very good at infection control um, and we didn't actually have a really good understanding of infection control. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think um, it's it's certainly really increased that um that kind of knowledge within our junior nurses and I think that that will stand them in really good stead. The other thing is that um, it's taught junior nurses uh, that they have to be adaptable, that they mm. will they will be nursing infectious patients, um, that they will be um, putting themselves potentially at risk in the workforce if they choose to work in a particular environment, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I think prior to this year, there there was a notion that um, there was there was a pretense of being protected from that, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's that's been really brought home this year that that mm-hmm. you're a nurse and you're in it or you're not, you know. Um, and I think that's yeah, really mm-hmm. key. Yeah, I, I was brought into a bit of a baptism fight. Sorry, Jackson, to interrupt, but working on a COVID ward as as a grad nurse basically what you just said, but the time management, I had to rethink how I was going to care for these patients because I had to have the greatest impact on them with the least amount of time. And so yep. it was a whole new way of thinking. So it was really good to challenge, um, not only get those new skills, as you said, but to challenge your way of thinking and to reflect that in, in your care with your patients. Yeah. That- Amber, you, I mean, you've, yeah, you've been a nurse on a COVID ward. Um what a crazy rare thing to happen in Australia anyway, because it's only impacted Victoria um, yes. where you are, mm-hmm. uh, well, generally speaking. 
Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, yep. uh, what this has been your graduate year. You're a grad this year. And, yep. and you've been on a COVID ward. Like very few nurses in Australia have done that, let alone grads. So mm-hmm. what's give me the rundown. Like what's that been like? So the ward that I was on was an orthopedics ward. So when, you know, you're watching what was happening in Italy back at the start of the year, I was like, it won't come to me. It, it won't yeah. happen. I'm a surgical ward. It's fine. And lo and behold, the way that the ward was structured with negative pressure rooms, we did become the third line of COVID. And um, we, we were more in contact with people suspected, what we call SCOVID patients. So we quickly had to learn the infection control procedures and that what I was saying before, that that way of thinking, having the most impact with the least amount of time and kind of planning your care for the whole day and trying to get in there the least, which was really hard as a grad when you're trying to perfect, you know, skills and and, and get used to orientating yourself on the ward. But when the second wave hit and it kind of hit home when we are having those 700-plus patients, uh, I should say um, community members, um, yeah, um, you know, coming up as positive patients, it kind of hit home of, wow, first of all, pardon my French, I was shitting my pants because I Mm -hmm. thought having the lack of experience was going to put me at risk of I'm going to take a glove off wrong or the mask off at the wrong time and I'm going to get COVID and I didn't want to be the one to bring it back to my family. So I first of all had to give back myself. I'd done the training. I had the experience with this COVID patient. So when I did look after my first positive patient, I actually backed myself that I knew knew what I was doing and I wasn't afraid to delegate tasks and actually say, hey, I'm a grad, this is a bit out of my scope, can I have a bit of help, a bit of guidance mm-hmm. um, and worked my way towards actually having a patient load of COVID. Well, with, did you ever look after a positive patient? Yeah, um, there was uh, at one point there was a couple on the ward and they tried to keep the, the ward dirty nurses, so they were the ones that would look after the positive or the suspected. And then the other half of the ward was still orthopedic. So at that point, we were still having trauma cases. So a lot of people were having falls and things like that. So it was really a heavy load. So for instance, my last shift on this ward, I had a patient who got hit by a car. I had a lady who'd done her off and I had two patients, one positive, one suspected of COVID. So it really was a big juggle. Um, Yeah, wow. What a what a unique like experience for you, and you're gonna come out so much better. Yeah, I I, so I try and see the positive in that experience. As I said, I was crapping my pants at the start, yeah, totally. and then I slowly, you know, you take the wins as they come, and I'd get through my first shift, and I was like, wow, you know, I I, I first of all I've nursed a patient with COVID. Not many people get to say that, and then I got to start integrating a bit more personal care. So I got to help doing things like. The biggest concern for them was isolation from their families. We had one particular patient that mm. hadn't seen, because she was from a nursing home, her family since February, mm. um, and she was in her 90s. So there was a real chance that this patient was going to pass away. So I, you know, put that effort in to organise a Skype call. And just things like that really I took as the big wins from the COVID ward. Yeah. Amber, I'm just interested to hear actually mm-hmm. how... How have um, health facilities kind of integrated um, a graduate year with a COVID year? Um, you know, yeah. how, how have they managed to to provide education and, and all of those things um, in that context um, of, a, of a COVID year? Yeah, so originally um, the graduate team at my hospital said that we would not come into contact with positive on the ward. 
Um, and that was short-lived because obviously I have. I spent months doing it. Um, but um, with the hospital that I chose, I had a substantial amount of study days. So they were changed. That, that was flipped on its head. So we went from doing a lot of Zoom meetings. We didn't. We weren't doing our weekly PDs, which was something that I really enjoyed with the hospital. Um, and with working on the COVID ward, we tried to limit the amount of people coming in. So I really had to make the effort to utilise the resource around me, not just depend on the graduate team as a resource. Um, so to be aware of that um, and to keep into regular contact because, you know, as I said, they are a great resource and I do have to tick things off in my graduate program. So I felt a bit cut off from the rest of the hospital in a sense, yeah. but I got through it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And your graduate is almost finished. And Yes. I mean, I understand this interview has gone to an hour and 30 minutes, but like mm -hmm. it's just... Um, if you guys are willing to stay, I'm happy to stay. I'm absolutely busting, but you know, my kidneys are, whoop, but we will go through this. Um, <laughs> your grad year, I mean, you, you, we've got your lecturer, one of your lecturers here. I mean, mm -hmm. he was part of that person, part of the person, can't even speak. Um, one of a big team who really molded you as to the nurse you are now. So like, what is the biggest learning curve you've taken from uni that hit home during your graduate? Good question. And I'm not just going to say this because Ashton is here listening, but I think the biggest thing I took from my final year, other than nursing, being a nurse, I should say, you are privileged. You're in that position of power and we take accountability for that. But understanding that it's a person that is the, your patient. So getting that bigger picture. Um, and I guess you could use the example of, this lady, she was a positive COVID patient, but I got the bigger understanding of what was important to her and a simple phone call to her um, family, like a Skype call meant so much more than me giving her antibiotics or uh, helping her with hygiene in the morning or just giving her that little interaction for five, 10 minutes. That was much, much more um, than perhaps what my nursing care would have been. So to make it more personable and kind of hit home on patient-centered care. I, I'm gonna... Um, slowly wrap this up and I'm going to ask the next few questions to both of you. So okay. <laughs> now both my guests, let's do it. Mm -hmm. um, I guess my first question coming from your perspective as a lecturer uh, is what is your biggest piece of advice you would give to a junior, uh, sorry, let's, well, let's do this two ways. What is the biggest piece of advice you would give to a junior nurse and what mm -hmm. is the biggest piece of advice you would have given yourself when you were a junior nurse? Right. Uh, we'll go you Ash Ashton. You go first. Oh, sorry. I thought it was directed at Ashton. That was my bad. No, 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 okay. but, uh, no you're, you're not off the hook, Amber. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I actually, I actually thought it was going. The question was going to be, "What was Amber like as a student?" To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> she passed. So it could have been great. <laughs> um, biggest piece of advice on junior nurses. Um, <laughs> Have patience with yourself. To be honest, um, it's mm. it, it's no rocket science. To be honest, I'm I'm not going to um, pretend there's any magical recipe that I can give you to be um, an essential nurse or you know um, a, an exceptional nurse. Sorry, um, have have an enormous amount of patience with yourself and the skills that you will develop along the way and the knowledge that you will develop along the way. I think um, as junior nurses, we put an enormous amount of pressure on ourselves to feel that we have to know everything. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly when I 
commence the year that I did straight out of university, um, I felt that that I am now this licensed RN that I have to know absolutely everything there is to know about nursing. Um, and if I don't, I'm an absolute failure. Um, have patience with the journey that nursing will take you on. You've got years of learning. And if you ever stop learning, um, then get out of nursing. Um, because honestly, um, your, your time is done. Um, for me, uh, even as a lecturer, I don't stop learning um, every single day and I learn so much from my students and so forth that um, that learning journey does not stop in nursing. So have patience with yourself and don't try and fool yourself that you have to know everything. Um, but what would be your biggest piece of advice you would give to yourself at the start of your graduate? Yeah, I think it's just flowing on to what Ashton said. Um, you know, you go from a student, you've got this wealth of knowledge and you've, you're eager to put that into practice. And one thing that I learned pretty hard and pretty quick is that I don't have to know anything, everything. And when I think that I did, that was when I found that I lost group of my care and my patients and I felt like I wasn't actually practicing safely. So to actually be kind to yourself, um, give yourself the chance to consolidate what you do know and respect where you are on that journey because nursing career can be for some people decades long and you've got that time span to get to where you need to go. And I, I, I've got a, a more of an understanding and appreciation that there is many areas of nursing and to be open-minded because I went in with the mentality of critical care, as Ashton was saying, most nursing yeah. students think that. And being exposed to some of the rotation areas I have I have a new interest in, and kind of respect for other areas. So just have an open mind as well rather than being a bit tunnel visioned. Mm. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, anyone watching, if you have any final questions, pop them down um, in the comments on Facebook. Um, look, there's probably, do you, I guess I want to ask Ash, if you were in charge of nursing in Australia and you had unlimited money and you could change anything, <laughs> In regards to oh, nursing, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> what would you change? What would you do if you could change one thing about nursing in Australia? It would be bring our pets to work. Um, yes. Oh, done. That is a great, <laughs> great suggestion. No. <laughs> um, uh, look, this is this is a this is a such a tough question to be honest. Um, there are there are so many things that I love about nursing. So many things that that I hate. Um, for for me. The biggest thing um, is is the culture of nursing that we have. Actually, um, I I actually really see a need for a shift um, in the culture um, mm -hmm. and an investment in the the culture of nursing. I I really dislike the fact that there's a there's a culture of of eating our young um, in nursing um, and a, a culture of of um, not not really nurturing our our young and 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 helping them develop and refine, um, but rather um, putting them through their paces and having them earn their stripes, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. I would really love um, to, uh, I'm not sure what monetary value you can actually put on that kind of cultural change. So I don't know if I need an endless bucket of money or people just need to start listening to Ashton Klein perhaps. Um, but uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's never going to happen. People just tune out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but honestly, I, I, I'm really, um, I get taken aback by the, the stories that I hear around um, students being uh, kind of put through, put through their paces, I guess, in, a, in, an, 
in an unworldly way or an unfair way or junior nurses in their graduate year being put through um, the tests of nursing because that's the way that that senior nurses were um, put through their paces, I guess, and earned their stripes. And so I, I really would like to see more of a nurturing of, of um, innovation and and young kind of nursing and and growth in that area um and but but an amalgamation of of the senior nurse and the junior nurse so there's more mentoring rather than um rather than simple um you know kind of you have to reach this level before uh achieving this and i guess i say that because in my career i i kind of reached um and an anum position quite young um and i came up against quite a lot of political kind of battles um, as a result of that and um, and it was it was quite confronting I guess but also quite detrimental to my own mental health and so it's um, it's very hard um, to to walk away from that and and feel that that's a positive experience and and that was probably one of the attributing factors to me leaving the clinical clinical setting yeah there you go um look they are oh, okay I'm just gonna go through some of the the um comments that just popped through jackson uh, jacob says ashton klein future minister for health jackson I, I is also an ex-student of mine by the way yeah <laughs> there's a few ex-students we've got madison liza ashton has been one of the best lecturers i've had the pleasure of learning from an acu he truly goes above and beyond to try and provide the best help he can in his role as an educator and clinical coordinator keep up the great work ashton um, thanks for those yeah, comments yeah. guys uh look where i'm going to give uh, Ashton, one minute for each of these questions, because otherwise we'll... Um... Yeah, <laughs> I told you I could... I, I, no, 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 I have to let you go. Like, I'm keeping you all here. But um, I, we'll... we'll... Blaze has already left, by the way. He's had enough. Yeah, I've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's gone. Uh, Jake Jackson asks, Hi, Ashton, do you think the industry would ever embrace a traineeship kind of model for students to work in the acute setting during their degree? Yeah, I... I... I actually think that industry does want that. Um, to be honest, I think that there are there's a there's a huge call for that from industry, um, there, and there are huge benefits for that. Um, what I'm seeing from a clinical coordination point of view, when I'm talking to clinical partners, knowing that I've only got 60 seconds to answer this, is that um, that clinical partners are actually wanting. Um, uh, us to ingrain students within their organisation, um, and yeah. what I what I really see the benefit of is us forming universities forming relationships with particular um, clinical agencies um, and creating um, yeah. uh, partnerships and having students move through those placements as a traineeship type arrangement. Um, I don't want to take away from the advances in nursing um, uh, scholarship that we've made um, because yeah. I think. We had a huge move in in the 90s to move nursing into university, and I don't want to detract from that. That's really important that we yeah. retain that. Um, but I think there is a need for us to have a, a more practical um, skills-based, um, hands-on experience throughout the curriculum rather than being in blocks, et cetera. Mm. I think I would have appreciated that during my degree, I felt like you, you you were clinically at your best and then really you let it go when you had to wait for that semester to finish to do your next placement block. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting sort of model. Um, sort of following on that, uh, Michaela Roberts has asked, 
why are we not able to be paid for our placements, even the very minimal? I would say uh, most health professions, physio, OT, optometry, pharmacy, medicine, paramedics, none of us get paid. Um, so if nursing did it, um, that would be a first. Um, mm. But what do you say, Ashton, to that? Well, the problem is if you get paid for something, there's an expectation that you'll perform at a certain level. Um, and you'll you'll be able to perform a role within that organisation. So yeah. um, you have to be prepared if you're getting paid um, that you'll be able to perform a duty. Um, and some students can't perform that duty. Uh, and so it's an unfair expectation or unrealistic expectation to expect that all students will be paid. I mean, you look at uh, Singapore, for example, um, students get paid uh, something like $50 a day um, for their placement um, experience, um, but they are part of the nursing workforce from day one. Um, so they are um, literally allocated to patients um, and uh, expected to perform the duties of a nurse, a junior nurse, um, from, from the get-go. So there would be an expectation if students were paid that you would perform those duties. And I, I think that, that totally goes against the educational um, kind of principles. Yeah. I think it would, it would blur employer, sorry, it would blur your role as a student there to learn and your role yep. there to be an employee and yep. to work. Um, there's, I mean, there's argument for, for some kind of allowance. Um, you know, there used to be, for example, some hospitals used to pay, for example, students $5 a day from... Yep. Back in my day, uh, $5 was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but so that students could buy their lunch, for example. You know, or they, they help out with car parking some. Yeah, yeah. Like, parking should be free for every health professional. Um, yeah. Final question that I'll put to both of you. Mm -hmm. um, and we've touched on this already. Like we have answered this a little bit. But mm -hmm. Amber, what would your piece? Uh, what advice would you give for students to get the most out of their professional placements? Um, well, I think the best thing that I did and what I figured out worked well for me was I actually would seek constant feedback with every kind of opportunity I had with the skill or not just the certain competencies I had to tick off for that placement, but the simple things like how is that interaction? I did this for this patient. Could I have done it better? And having that real-time feedback made it a lot easier to kind of reinforce good habits or have that opportunity to go, okay, next time when this opportunity comes, I'm going to do this and it's fresh in my mind. So hmm. not being afraid to ask for feedback and to also be able to cop the feedback too and, oh, and really? to be able to take it professionally. Yeah, mm. very good answer. Mm. Ash, what about you? I think it's about, it's about expectations um, and a lot of students go into a clinical placement uh, experience expecting to achieve um, uh, a perfect level. Um, or, or achieve a, a perfect um, score, I guess, on, on their tools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you have to be, as Amber said, you have to be willing to receive um, realistic feedback. I, I get a lot of students who come back after a placement and say, I'm, I'm really unhappy with, with um, the feedback that I've received because I was only at level three and I, I, I thought that I was at level five. Um, um, realistically if, you, if you're at level five for all clinical placements then then there would be no point in you being educated um essentially so um yeah. you know the whole point of clinical placement is, is to improve um so there has to be room for improvement so take that feedback on board and and um, whatever experience you're allocated, um, do make the most of it. You can learn a hell of a lot as a third-year student in an aged care setting that you couldn't learn as a first-year student um, because of the complexities of chronic illness and, and all of those um, health issues. You can, mm -hmm. you can learn so much. So, 
<clears throat> no, 100%. That's really good advice. Um, last question is, what is next for your careers? What are you guys doing? Do you want to go first, Ashton? No, please, you go. I'm, I'm still deciding. I'll decide in the next <laughs> year. <laughs> it, um, it, it seems a bit far-fetched because I'm just, to be honest with you, I'm just trying to get through this this program in the next three months. Um, for me, I'm in, in the middle of getting job applications, which is um, you know, a whole new experience for me. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out areas. As I've said, having exposure to new rotations, it's kind of changed where I want to go. Um, but quickly, I'm, I'm training to be a nursing officer in the Army. So I know upcoming for me, I'll have Defence Force training, military training, and to become a nursing officer. Um, and hopefully, I'd like to do some postgraduate studies and to get some deployments and leadership opportunities and um, get opportunities to interrelate defence and civilian nursing because I, f- I would find that concept quite interesting and to utilise what I learn in both and reflect in the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 100%. Great, mm. great <laughs> aspirations. <laughs> As I said, I'll just get through the next three months first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ash? Uh, so for me, I mean, I had to um, reject Dan Andrews' um, recent <laughs> replace Jenny Makakos but um, but, um, but even so um, I'm, I'm very happy uh, where I am at the moment <laughs> um, uh, and um, what, I, what I'd really like to do is, is cement the cement the doctorate um, and uh, and get that sorted and then um, move up into I, I, funnily enough I see myself I'm going to probably regret saying this but I see myself as um, as being a head of school or um, similar in the the academic uh, world at some point so uh, you really will like definitely that. do that <laughs> really I, see, I don't see any barriers for you to do that <laughs> the only barriers are up here mate um, so, <laughs> yeah uh, so that that's what I'd like to do <laughs> um yeah anything you would like to add Amber no I uh-huh. I can see you running. I can see you running the country, Ashton. Let alone uh, school. <laughs> Be very uh, persuasive. Hard to say no to. Even like this guy has a pound. There goes the dog. Um, look, yeah, guys, it's been a pleasure. Um, we've had at least twenty to thirty people stay with us the entire time. So there's been quite a few hundred who have watched throughout. Um, mm. If you guys, this is the first one you've watched and you're still with us, we have done we've done nine of these with people from all different areas. So if you hop onto the Facebook, you can watch these videos that we're doing right now. You can watch all the previous ones. If you don't do that, if you don't like doing that, or you're driving to work and you want to listen to them as podcasts, you can also just listen to them as podcasts. You can go on any podcast sort of hosting platform. You can go on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple, and just type in the nurse break and you can listen to all our inspiring guests that I've previously interviewed. Something that I want to start doing with this uh, is having co-hosts. I mean, to de- and having different people sort of join. Um, I think it, it'll just add a really unique dynamic to it. Also want to do some interesting things, such as we're going to do a panel of graduates, panel of students. So, Amber, you're, you're going to be on that. Well, I'll, I'll invite you on it, but I would love you to be on that. Yep. I, I was going to say, this I is want... the first I'm hearing, but sure, <laughs> I'm happy to be a part of it. And we'll have a panel for grads. We'll have a panel for students. I, I'm honestly keen to get a panel of university lecturers and nut out all the issues with nursing lecturing and midwifery and all those things. Um, so, yeah, there's some cool things in the making. I just have to find time. Uh, but we will get there. Um, yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining. Mm. I hope you guys... Nice. Thanks for your time, Ashton.
as always, a no. pleasure. Um, oh, that's, uh, I wonder if um, I wonder if Alexandra is starting at ACU. Alexandra Nicolak Goldspink says, "I start next year, so thank you so much. So excited for my first year. Yeah, well, um, work Be hard. And, it's exciting time. Absolutely, yeah, it's time to be a nurse. Um, Guys, when I take you off screen, just stay there. We can um, chat off screen. But, guys, um, thank you for watching. And uh, I will be in touch. If you have any further questions, feel free to post them in the Facebook chat and we'll um, request that Ash answer them. Uh, or Amber. Um, I love, like, telling people what they're going to do without asking. Have you noticed? I'm just like, just you will do I, this. <laughs> just remember I don't like writing things, so that's why yeah. we just do <laughs> we'll get him to record a voiceover for your for your question. Um, okay, guys, uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks again. Beautiful. Thanks. I have to get, figure out how to get rid of the screen. <laughs> <laughs>